From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. It was almost a year ago when we first talked about a novel coronavirus with Upstate's Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Stephen Thomas, who's also a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. When we spoke in January 2020, a new outbreak of a respiratory virus in China had sickened more than 6,000 people and killed 132, but it wasn't until mid-March that a global pandemic was declared. And since then, more than 13 million people have been infected in the United States, and 267,000 deaths have been tallied. We invited Dr. Thomas back to HealthLink on Air to talk about what we've learned in the last year about the virus that causes the disease we now call COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Thomas, for making time again for HealthLink on Air. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's begin with what will hopefully put an end to the pandemic, and that's the creation of a vaccine. The State University of New York Board of Trustees commended you for being the lead principal investigator for the Pfizer BioNTech Global Phase 3 COVID-19 vaccine trial. And I know some of the participants in that trial are right here in central New York. Were you surprised that this vaccine appears to be 95% effective? And can you put that effectiveness level into context regarding vaccines in general? Sure. So I guess the first thing I would say is that uh, the um, uh, a slight correction that the board the board of trustees commendation was for uh, the the whole global health team and the university, uh, and I would personally extend it to uh, the community because the outreach of support that we've had um, from Central New York uh, and you know the three hundred plus volunteers that we've enrolled in the trial has just been uh, tremendous. So yes, we were very proud to be um, commended by the Board of Trustees. Um, the second thing I would say is that yes, I think everybody, every vaccine developer or an immunologist that you speak to, especially those that have been you know, studying respiratory viruses for their careers, I think everyone was really astounded by this 95% uh, uh, efficacy. And, and I think what's you know, even more astounding is that, uh, you know, that's the, the Pfizer vaccine efficacy. Moderna, which is another vaccine development company and is developing a very similar type of COVID vaccine, their efficacy is 94%, greater than 94%. So to have two completely separate companies um, doing two individual independent trials, enrolling more than, you know, 60,000 people uh, collecting hundreds of COVID cases uh, and to get almost identical results because they're using uh, a, a similar platform uh, is very, very validating for uh, for those data. And I think um, increases people's um, you know confidence uh, that that the results are are uh, high quality and that the results are accurate. Are you are there other vaccines that rate that high for other diseases? I mean, 95% seems tremendous. It is. You know, there are a lot of vaccines in the routine immunization schedule for both uh, children and adults that exceed 90% uh, in terms of efficacy and effectiveness. Not all of them do, but but a lot of them do. Um, you know, measles, mumps, rubella vaccines, uh, for example. Um, some of the more uh, kind of esoteric vaccines like yellow fever. Um, yeah, so it's it's not unusual that they exceed 90%, but for a respiratory virus vaccine, um, it, it is. Uh, so if you think about influenza, the estimated 
efficacy for the 2019-2020 influenza vaccine was only about 45%. So this is more than two times uh, as effective. Um, so, so yes, there are vaccine, you know, mo a lot of vaccines in the routine immunization schedule exceed 90% efficacy, but, but when you're talking about respiratory viruses, this is a pretty astounding achievement. Uh, in a typical vaccine trial, uh, half the participants would get a dose of the real thing and half would get a placebo so that you can compare. So does that mean the people who participated in this trial have protection against COVID-19 or at least half of them? So, right. So the way that you do these kind of clinical endpoint uh, studies or these efficacy studies is that you, you, you take a group of people who are all at equal risk of being infected and all at equal risk of getting disease if they are infected. And then uh, these are blinded studies, which means a double blinded actually, which means neither the volunteer nor the research scientists know who is getting vaccine and who is getting placebo. In this particular case, it was a 50-50 split. And, and the, the people who are chosen to get vaccine and the people who are chosen to get placebo, it's completely random. Um, you know, it's a flip of a coin. So then, you know, everyone gets their two doses of vaccine or placebo, and then you follow, uh, you follow these folks and, and they go on and they live their lives and we stay in very, very close contact with them. And when people start reporting symptoms to us, uh, then we evaluate them and, and uh, diagnose a COVID infection if they, if they have one. And then once you reach a certain number of infections, then the unblinded statisticians can look at the data and say, okay, you had this many infections in the placebo group, you had this many infections in the vaccine group, and you do some fancy math, and then you come up with these uh, vaccine efficacy determinations. So what it means is with 95% that um, the vaccine reduced the risk of disease in the vaccine recipient by 95% as compared to placebo. So yes, the people who received two doses of vaccine as part of our trial, um, yes, the 95% of them would be protected from, from COVID disease. But they don't know yet whether they got the vaccine or the placebo because the trial's still going on. Is that right? That's correct. We, are, we all still are blinded, including myself. <laughs> all right. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's the chief of infectious disease at Upstate and a professor specializing in microbiology and immunology. He's also the principal investigator for the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine trial. So I've heard the term mRNA technology in regard to the Pfizer vaccine and also the, I guess the Moderna vaccine is uses the same mRNA technology. Can you explain what that is and, and how it works? You're correct. So, so both of those vaccines are using a messenger RNA or an mRNA vaccine uh, platform and you know these I, you know one of the things that, that I think should be made clear is that uh, COVID is not the first time that this vaccine platform has been used um, it's the first time that the vaccine has advanced this far into clinical testing but messenger RNA vaccine technology has been used for uh, Ebola vaccines influenza vaccines HIV vaccines anti-cancer vaccines um, so, it, you know, this is a technology that has been studied for multiple years. And I, I think it's important for people to understand that when they think about the speed with which 
um, these vaccine candidates have been, um, you know, have been developed. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, so how do they, you know, how do they work? Um, so, you know, parts of the vaccine, parts of the virus are, you know, serve uh, very essential functions. And, and one part of the virus called the, the spike protein is what allows the virus to attach to the cell in the human that it wants to infect. So the, almost like a, a key going into a lock. So the idea would be if you can develop an immune response against those spike proteins, you could interrupt that, right? So you could bind to the spike protein on the virus. It can now longer, no longer fit the key into the lock and you prevent infection of cells and therefore you prevent people from getting, people from getting sick. So what these messenger RNA vaccines do is that they, um, there's a, a part of the genetic code of that spike protein that is um, carried into the cells. Once you get the injection, the body starts to produce the spike protein, uh, and then the body reacts to that protein by saying, hey, you should not be here. <laughs> you're, you're foreign, and I don't want you here, and so I'm going to generate an immune response, making antibodies, for example, um, to try and neutralize you. And your body remembers that so that the next time that you encounter the virus, let's say you're you know, in a car with somebody who has COVID and you don't have a, vaccine, a mask on, the body will say, oh, I remember this. I developed an immune response against this before, and it will quickly react and it will quickly neutralize the virus and protect you, uh, protect you from disease. So it's really a very, it's a very interesting way to induce immunity in people. So it's designed to protect me from getting sick. Will it also prevent me from giving it to somebody else? That is a good question that we do not know. Um, we do not know the answer to that. There is data being collected as part of these clinical trials, um, which might, you know, might give us a little bit of insight into that. But those are, you know, to understand whether you can prevent infection is different than understanding whether you can prevent disease. And these are trials that are designed to show that disease is being prevented, not necessarily infection. And then to carry that even further, uh, you know, the, to design trials that would allow you to understand whether the vaccine actually reduces transmission of the virus, that's a whole kind of separate, uh, separate design, if you will, of these, uh, of these trials. But, but I what I would say is it's, it is, it is plausible and it is theoretically possible that a, a vaccine which reduces the amount of virus replicating in the body, um, if it can do that and it can do that you know, efficiently, it could potentially prevent someone from becoming, um, maybe not necessarily prevent them from being infected, but prevent them from being infectious to other people. Is this vaccine meant for all ages, including children and senior citizens? So the trials are are primarily being done in people 18 years of age and older. Um, in some cases, there's, you know, the upper age limit is about 85. Um, and Pfizer is, I think, the only vaccine that I'm aware of that is in phase three and testing uh, the vaccine in people less than 18, so down to 12 years of age. The FDA will only grant you an emergency use authorization or grant you a license, um, typically based on the data that you have and in the populations that you generated that data. So if your trials are 18 years and above, 
the FDA will say, we approve your vaccine for people 18, uh, 18 and above. Um, so right now, I, I, you know, my guess is that's, that's where the majority of the data currently exists. And if an emergency use authorization is issued, it's going to be issued for people of 18 years of age and older. Um, but that includes obviously senior citizens. And um, we know that, you know, it was very, very important for them to be included because, uh, you know, people over 60 years of age are, they get more severe illness, they get hospitalized more frequently. And unfortunately they die of the disease much more frequently than people less than 60 years of age. So you're, you know, they are a target population to protect through vaccination. So there were thousands and thousands of people over 65, uh, over 60 um, and 65 years of age in these, uh, in these trials. When you look at who's going to be prioritized to receive uh, the first doses of vaccine that, that come out, um, they're in the upper tiers uh, of who will, who will be eligible for some of the first uh, vaccinations. Well, since the vaccine depends on the body's immune system, are these vaccines going to be effective for people who have compromised immune systems? So it would it would depend on how you define compromised immune systems. So um, the Pfizer trial, in addition to enrolling people 18, you know, 12 years of age up to 85, enrolling people who have stable uh, medical problems, they are also uh, enrolling people with stable HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C, which we know are immunosuppressive um, conditions. But they did not enroll people who had, um, you know, uh, uh, cancer or people that are taking highly immunosuppressive drugs um, or people that have uncontrolled uh, HIV, for example. So it would be, you know, I, it would, unless you can generate the data in those groups, it's going to be difficult for the FDA to say, yes, it would be safe and effective in that group. And that's, you know, it's not just COVID vaccines. It's, it's most vaccines that are under development. Those groups are, are not typically included primarily from a safety perspective. Well, the Pfizer vaccine is reported to need special freezers to keep it cold before it's used for patients. And it also, I believe, requires two injections. Is that going to complicate things for distribution? So in terms of the number of, of doses of vaccine that you have to get to complete the regimen, if you will, um, you know, more than one dose is not, uh, it's not unique. Again, there are a number of vaccines in the routine immunization schedule for both children and adults when you need more than one uh, dose of vaccine to complete the regimen and to be maximally protected. So, you know, so is it, you know, is it a little more challenging than a single dose vaccine? Sure. Is it going to be, you know, uh, complicated by the sheer numbers of people that we're going to try to get vaccinated in a period of time? Yes, that, that, that's for sure. Um, can it be done? Yes, I think I think it can be done. Um, and both the uh, Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine are two-dose uh, vaccines. Now, the temperature at which these things have to be stored, so, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine is refrigerator temperature, so that's two to eight degrees, um, so that's kind of standard. The Moderna vaccine is minus 20 Celsius, and the um, Pfizer vaccine is minus 70. So this is, these are really, really cold temperatures. And these are not kind of routine temperatures that we store 
um, you know, that we store uh, vaccines in the pharmacy, for example. Um, but what I would say is that, yeah, and that is a challenge. Obviously, that's a challenge. It's a challenge because you have to make sure that that vaccine, let's say Pfizer's case, that vaccine is minus 70 degrees when it leaves the manufacturing facility. It's got to arrive at the distribution facility and be stored there at minus 70. And then it's got to be minus 70 as it goes to the pharmacy or the hospital. And then it has to stay at minus 70 until um, it gets injected into the person. You know, there are some variations and some kind of innovative things you can do to prolong, you know, to store it at higher temperatures. But the, you know, the duration at which you could store something uh, at a warmer temperature is much shorter uh, than we like. That being said, though, you know, we often in science are, you know, shipping viruses all over the world at minus 80 degrees <laughs> Celsius. And we are constantly storing things at very, very cold uh, temperatures. So, you know, we have the technology to do this. Uh, it's just a matter of the kind of the scale and the coordination, which Operation Warp Speed and, and Pfizer have to have to figure out. And I think they are figuring it out. The last thing I would say is it is really not unusual for a vaccine um, to be, especially a viral vaccine, to be stored at very, very cold temperatures early in its development life cycle. Because what happens is you start at very, very cold temperatures at the same time that you're developing it, you're also doing experiments to show that it can be stored at warmer temperatures and the duration at which it can be stored at warmer temperatures. But in this case, the clinical development has kind of outpaced those other experiments. But I, you know, I would be very surprised that minus 70 is the end of the story in terms of uh, uh, the temperature that uh, the, the you know the Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at. So the people that have had COVID and have antibodies now are they going to need a vaccination? Um, so we do know that there are people who had COVID, um, mostly the asymptomatic people who had COVID uh, that have been enrolled in the trials and. Um, you know, unbeknownst to us, they had COVID before they were enrolled to the trials. Because if people had a documented COVID infection, we did not enroll them in the study. But lots of people get infected. They don't know it. You know, anywhere up to 40% of people can have an asymptomatic infection. Um, so there is going to be a subset of people who had COVID prior to enrolling in the trial. We're going to know who those people are because we take blood samples at baseline so we can test them for antibody. Um, and then we'll see, you know, we'll see how that group and how the vaccine performed in that group compared to those people who had not been previously infected. And we use the same criteria that we use for everybody else. Is it safe? Um, and, uh, you know, did it work? I personally think that, uh, and I believe the, the FDA believes this as well, you need to have a vaccine that is safe and effective in people who have been previously infected. Um, because you cannot screen everybody before they get vaccinated, number one. And number two, we do know that people can have waning immunity after natural infection. And we have seen, fortunately, low numbers, but we have seen people who get reinfected. So I think it's important. Uh, I, I, so it, it's going to be important and probably a requirement that um, any COVID vaccine be safe and effective in people who have been previously infected before. 
We have to take a break, but we'll be back with more about the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with the Upstate Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Stephen Thomas, about the pandemic. Now, you first told HealthLink on Air listeners about this novel coronavirus back in January 2020, before this was even called a pandemic. And at that point, there were comparisons between the death rates for COVID-19 and seasonal influenza, which you said in a typical year may kill 35,000 people in the United States. So how much more deadly is COVID-19? Yeah, so, you know, the other thing we talked about was how infectious it was, uh, you know, um, and we use this term called the, the reproductive number. And, you know, just to remind your listeners, the reproductive number is the average number of people that a single infected person will infect. So if you take measles, which is probably the most infectious pathogen on the planet, one person will on average infect 18 other people. If you look at something like influenza, that number is about, you know, 1.3. So you have three people with influenza will result in one additional person being infected. For COVID, that number is anywhere between two and four, which is why these epidemic curves that we see can have such a steep, you know, such a steep, a steep rise. The other thing is, you know, influenza, you're right, they can kill anywhere between, you know, 35 and uh, 40,000 people a year. It can result in about 750 to a million people being hospitalized every year. Um, But it's predominantly, I mean, it's mostly a respiratory illness, right? People are getting, you know, they're getting infections in their lungs uh, and they they have problems that result primarily from that. They they can have other organ systems that get in, you know, that get involved, but for the most part it's limited to uh it's limited to the respiratory system. With COVID, you can have neurologic problems, you can have stroke, you can have loss of taste, loss of smell, you can have liver problems, people can have um problems with their, you know, their stomach and their intestines, so their gastrointestinal system. You have lots of people who experience uh kidney failure. Um you know, people who have, uh, um, they get these uh, uh, arrhythmias of their heart. So the heart doesn't beat in the pattern that it's supposed to beat. And, and it causes people to have lots of problems. In addition to the fact that it can really um, destroy a person's lungs and, and prevent them from being able to breathe um, properly. Um, so, you know, and you mentioned the numbers at the beginning of the you know, at the beginning of the of of the broadcast, I mean, we're looking at almost two hundred and seventy thousand uh, deaths in the you know in the United States, and uh, you know, north of what thirteen million, close to thirteen million infections. So, um, yeah, so you know, we 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 don't know everything about this virus, but by all by all accounts, it absolutely seems to be uh, uh, much more. Uh, more severe than than influenza. If you, if you just look at, you know, if you just look at the numbers. Well, when this started, um, we thought the incubation period, the time between infection and when you might see symptoms was anywhere between one and 14 days. Is that still the thinking? It is, you know, there are, 
there are always outliers, right? So there's always um, people who might get uh, an incubation period. The way I typically think of an incubation period is what is the time period between when I get infected and when I develop symptoms? So that's, that's kind of, uh, uh, that, that's how we think of an incubation period. Um, and it still is on average about five days for the most part. But again, there's people who get sick sooner. So it could be two days or people that there's a delay and they get sick later. It could be, you know, eight or nine days or 10 days. But for the most part, um, people who are going to get sick, the vast majority of them are, are sick by five days after, um, you know, more than 75% of people are sick five days after, after they get infected. And then in terms of being infectious to other people, um, we believe that, you know, based on, uh, you know, the studies that, that we've done, we believe that people are infectious anywhere from one to two days prior to them developing symptoms and up to eight days after um, developing, developing symptoms. So there's a pretty long period of time that people seem to have live virus, uh, you know, in their nose or in their nasopharyngeal cavity or in their, in their saliva, um, and they're capable of transmitting to other people. Do we know or are you able to predict which patient at the time someone tests positive uh, is going to have a rough time with the virus? I mean, there seems to be a whole big disparity between some people that yeah. end up in the hospital and some people who it's an easy course. Do we know how right. to predict which way it's going to go? Well, yeah, there's some groups out there that have tried to come up with kind of prognostic, uh, you know, um, prognosticators uh, or scales or, you know, equations to try and predict who will become, uh, who has a higher risk of becoming sick versus who does not. But, but in general, older people get sick more often, end up hospitalized more often, and they end up dying more often. They get severe disease and die more often, older people. People who have um, obesity, people who have diabetes, people who have pre-existing lung disease or kidney disease, they also do um, significantly worse than people that don't have those comorbidities. And you know, we've, we've lost over 100 children, so kids less than 18, 21 years of age. In this country alone, we've lost over 100 kids to COVID infections. But a lot of those kids had pre had other medical problems, right? Um, so it's it's a common theme. If you have pre-existing medical problems, um, you're not going to tolerate uh, this disease as well. The other thing is the racial and ethnic disparities that that we see. So we know that um, uh, pe people of Latino descent, people of uh, African Americans, Native Americans. Um, uh, uh, these people do do worse um, when they get infected uh, compared to uh, folks that are not in those those uh, those demographics. Well, I think most people by now have heard about how to reduce viral transmission with wearing masks and uh, hand sanitizing and keeping socially distanced. But you recently wrote about shifting the public health messaging to why we need to reduce transmission. So what do you mean by that? I was uh, just sort of thinking about, um, you know, looking at 
what happened after uh, the Halloween holiday, right? So we we did we spent all this time and effort and energy in trying to message to people, listen, this is not the year to have Halloween gatherings. This is not the year to go door to door. This is not the year to do that. And I know it's disappointing and I'm sorry, but you have to be innovative and think in a different way, right? So get together with your pod, right? Your select, you know, the people you live with in a small select inner circle of people and, and celebrate it that way. And it didn't happen, right? And we saw a bump and that bump has continued now into this big, huge peak. Of course, we've seen, you know, millions of people travel for Thanksgiving. Um, it just, so I'm just kind of thinking about things and saying, I think people are uh, tired and I think they're fatigued. And I think that maybe the messages that we've been giving about how to prevent infection are not as effective um, as they were before. And so I th thought, hey, why don't, why don't we shift our messaging to um, the positive? And so, you know, don't think about preventing is infections as, oh, I'm avoiding the negatives that these people are telling me about. I'm, I'm preventing infections to do something positive, meaning, you know, I'm important and people care about me and people rely on me and I don't want to get sick and I don't want to die. And I don't want to, you know, I have people that I love and I don't want to infect them and I don't want them to get sick and I don't want them to die. And I want my kids to benefit from in-person learning. We know that that's optimal. And, and, you know, I want my community members who own small businesses to not go out of business, right? And I want to be able to go see a football game and a basketball game. And I want to hear live music in person again. And so all these things that I want, which are very, very positive things, that's why I'm going to prevent infections, right? I'm going to focus on that kind of positive, um, you know, message. So I was just, I was just thinking that maybe if we can just kind of shift people's perspective and mood, then it would be, um, you know, maybe we can get more people changing their behavior uh, um, by, by, by shifting our attention and our focus. No, it's a good uh, point. It's a good way. way to look at it. I quoted, uh, I quoted, uh, you know, Nietzsche, which I've never done before in any of the things I've ever written. You know, and he said the, you know, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And so I was just kind of thinking that maybe that was appropriate. Well, in terms of treatment, I've heard that most people can recover with fluids and rest and maybe fever reducers or pain relievers. But for people who have a rougher time, what are the treatments that are improving the survival rates? So I can tell you the treatments, whether they're actually improving survival rates or not, it really depends on, on which group you look at and which data they've decided to weigh in, you know, to analyze and, and, and make their, uh, you know, render their, their opinion, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of differences out there, whether you look at the NIH or the Infectious Diseases Society of America, or you look at the World Health Organization, people seem to have different opinions. Um, so we, we believe that, so people who are sick enough to be in the hospital and typically people get admitted to the hospital if they are older 
where they have those medical comorbidities because we're concerned that things could uh, go poorly very quickly at home and, and we don't want that. And then people who are having trouble breathing, either they're breathing too fast or you know, they're not oxygenating their blood like they should be, uh, which we can measure that. Those are the people that get admitted to the hospital. And typically, if people get admitted to the hospital, they're gonna they're gonna get the uh, they're gonna get the hat trick. They're gonna get dexamethasone, which is a steroid to reduce inflammation in the in the body and predominantly in the lungs. They're gonna get remdesivir, which is an antiviral, so it interrupts the replication of the virus in the body. And they're gonna get plasma. So this, this is plasma contains antibodies and the plasma is collected from people who have, who are survivors, right? So we have a big convalescent plasma program uh, at Upstate under the direction of um, uh, Dr. Timothy Endy and Dr. Matt Elkins and the global health team where, you know, they have collected plasma from hundreds of survivors in central New York. They test the plasma um, and they select plasma that has high levels of antibodies, but not just quantity, uh, a quantitative test. They also look at the, how those antibodies are functioning and they kind of pick the best, <laughs> they pick the optimally performing plasma, uh, and people will get that. And basically it's to kind of help that person who's battling COVID to kind of give their immune system a boost or a helping hand while they're developing their own immune response. So, so if people are getting admitted to the hospital, they're going to get, uh, they're going to get those three um, medications. Now, when, the, you know, a reason they would not, we do have um, some clinical trials that are underway. Uh, most of them under the direction of uh, Dr. Chris uh, Polino, who's one of the infectious disease docs at Upstate and part of the global health team. Um, so Regeneron, for example, um, you know, that's the antibody cocktail that the president got. So we have a Regeneron protocol and that's, that's up and running. Um, and, uh, and we have some other protocols as well. So in the event that the patient wants to participate in some of those trials, because again, it is still a question as to what is, and there's no, nothing out there is a home run for sure. Right. Um, uh, and so participating in these clinical trials is, uh, you know, some people would prefer um, uh, to do that. Uh, so that's an option as well. But for the most part, remdesivir, a steroid, and plasma. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more pandemic coverage after this short break. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate, Dr. Stephen Thomas, about the pandemic. So can you explain why people who have survived COVID-19 need to still wear masks, sanitize their hands, keep their physical distance? Uh, sure. So I think um, part of it is that, again, we do not know uh, who is going to have a long-lived uh, and durable immune response. Um, we do not know how long people are protected from reinfection. We do know that we have seen people who are, uh, who, who do get reinfected and people who do seem to lose their immune response, at least as how, as we can, you know, as we measure it. Um, and so it really is for their, for their protection. Uh, 
the other reason, as I see it, which is it's less common, but we do know that people, certain people, uh, tend to have live virus that persists. You know, some people have were able to um, isolate live virus from people, you know, after 20 days, and, and there have been some case reports with people who have problems with their immune system that they could be isolated even, you know, even longer. Um, so that's kind of the second, uh, the second reason is we don't want, you know, we don't want them to infect other people because they assume that they're not infectious anymore. And I, and I think the, uh, the third reason is it would be very difficult to, um, you know, everyone should basically be wearing a mask unless they're like, you know, with their, either by themselves or in their, their family unit or their pod. Um, and it would be really difficult to, you know, know who who was infected previously and who was not and who's wearing a mask and who isn't and who should be and who shouldn't be so it's kind of one of those things where um you know i don't say this much but you know we're all in this together sort of thing and uh uh so i i, I think it's prudent for people even if they've been infected to continue to wear because we really don't know if it gives them immunity for how long yeah right so that's right yeah, not definitely not as it relates to immunity and protection for whatever period of time, not all infections are created equal. Not all COVID patients uh, emerge from their infection with the same level of immunity or their same level of protection. Now, some people that get COVID end up losing their um, sense of taste. Um, when, how long until that comes back or does it come back? Yeah, you know, it, if you look at uh, so Europe and the United States, it can be, you know, anywhere from, uh, you know, two. It, it's a pretty significant number. It can be up to thirty percent of people who can lose either completely or partially their sense of taste or their sense of smell. If you look at, you know, Southeast Asia, it's uh, or South Asia, it's it's a little less than that. Most people, so you know, probably more than sixty percent of people will have a recovery a full recovery within uh you know four to six weeks but there is a small there's a small percentage but significant you know up to 10 percent of people that they lose it for a prolonged period of time so it could be months or they lose it permanently so it's something that we need to continue to study and and follow these people to get better a better handle on things but in some of those initial um uh, studies those those are those are kind of that's kind of the breakdown and as you can imagine, it very, very disruptive and, and uh, disturbing to, to patients who, who are not regaining their sense of taste or smell. Well, I know you said there's still a lot to learn about this virus, but one thing is I, I thought viruses mutated. Is this one mutating? Are we you know, setting up a vaccine for one thing and then it's going to change, so we're going to have to come up with a different vaccine? Yeah, that's an important question, and there are lots and lots of groups who are, um, who are trying to answer that question. So we have, you know, groups all over the world who are isolating viruses from patients. They're looking at the full genetic code, which is kind of like a, a fingerprint, you know, of a virus. It's specific to the virus, and they're looking at the differences in that code between viruses in different parts of of the world. Um, their viruses are constantly, you know, 
when, when a virus is being, when, is, when it's replicating, there are constantly errors being introduced into that process. A lot of those errors are abortive in nature, meaning once the error is introduced, the replication stops and that virus doesn't go anywhere, right? Um, but then there's other errors that can persist. And then those viruses with the, the mutated viruses or the new virus strains can um, become the predominant strain. And that, ha that actually happened with, uh, you know, there's a, a particular there's a particular sequence in that spike protein that I was mentioning to you earlier that um, it had one code uh, up until about April uh, globally, right? And then all of the viruses started to change to a subtle but different new code. And everyone was asking, oh, geez, what, what, is this, what does this mean? So they started to look at it in the lab and they saw that this new virus actually replicated more efficiently in cells. And it actually replicated to a higher level in cells, and of course that got everybody really sort of nervous. Um, doesn't it doesn't seem that it has made a difference in terms of people getting sick or people getting sicker with this new virus. Um, so that's one component. The other component, which you mentioned, is yeah, does it mean that we're going to have to make new COVID vaccines every year, every couple of years? You know, we we don't we don't know the answer to that. Um, right now, though, it would appear that because of how these vaccines are made, that the coverage would be quite broad uh, across these different viruses. And I can tell you the vaccine manufacturers um, and the people who study vaccines and vaccination, they are absolutely looking at this question and the FDA is looking at this question. Um, and so, you know, I'm pretty confident we will, you know, we'll have at least some preliminary answers in 2021. Well, with more than 12 million Americans having already been infected and a vaccine coming out soon, how long until the coronavirus is no longer a threat? I would say this, I, I, it is not going away. <laughs> I have, because uh, remember, I mean, even with the number of infections we've had globally and in the United States, 80% of the population is still susceptible, right? It, you know, 80% of the population has not been infected, which of course is a huge, huge percentage. And so, um, and we know that not everybody is going to be vaccinated, um, either because the vaccine is not meant for them or they decide to not be vaccinated. Uh, and we do know with the efficiency of how this virus is transmitted from person to person, it's, it's always going to be percolating. Right, and once travel returns, people will be bringing it into the country, and Americans will be bringing it to other countries. So it's always going to be kind of uh, percolating along. Um, so it's never going to go. It's never going to go away. But in terms of its its level of disruption, if we have more than one safe and efficacious vaccine rolled out, let's just say in the United States, and it's rolled out over the next nine months. And there's enough vaccine to vaccinate, you know, seventy percent of the country. And Americans decide to take it, and at the same time, they improve their use of masks and improve their uh, compliance with social distancing. If that were to happen, I firmly believe at this time next year, life could look much, much different than it does now. 
and and some people would even look at it as quote unquote normal but those are two big ifs right um i'm pretty confident that the that the based on the information that i see now i'm pretty confident that the vaccines are going to be there i'm not so confident that the number of people who need to take it are going to and i'm not so confident unfortunately that people are going to pick up the pace as it relates to wearing masks and social distancing but if we were able to do that it, it could look drastically different uh, than it does now so in a positive way the vaccination is not going to solve this for us we still have to be mindful of of reducing the transmission ourselves right right yeah i mean you you would have if you had a 80 if you had a vaccine which was 80 percent efficacious so it reduced uh, the occurrence of disease by 80% in vaccinated groups compared to placebo. Um, you would have to vaccinate about 70% of the country um, for the amount of virus circulate, for, to, to starve the virus, basically, to have so little, um, so few people susceptible to infection that that reproductive number I was mentioning would be well below zero and it would just basically starve the virus and transmission would go way down and um you know and then it might look more like flu with you know maybe a million people getting sick over a year and you know maybe 50,000 people dying in a year versus what we you know where we are now which is just a tragedy well, we're so grateful to have such expertise right here in central New York. Thank you to Upstate's Chief of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Stephen Thomas, who's also a, the lead principal investigator for the Pfizer BioNTech Global Phase 3 COVID-19 vaccine trial. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.